Never. <laughs> All right. So welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Shenanigans podcast. Wait, no. Dang it, I did it again. All right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. <laughs> Let me get it right that time. Uh, just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, I'm just going to let you know that mistake in the intro was totally planned. And if you don't believe that, then it was Walt's fault. Bring I'm, it. I'm perfectly happy blaming Walt since I don't really know him yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, this is our, our third um, uh, fireside chat. So we just wanted to keep the, the show from stagnating and keep it interesting and exciting and fun. So uh, we're, we're doing these panels. They're a lot like a panel discussion you might see at a con, but less, uh, less formal. So this time, unlike what we've done in the past, we're going to try to encourage more back and forth instead of as scripted. So this time, I did not give them the questions in advance. And I'll try not to screw up the uh, the facilitating. And if I do, that's also Walt's fault. I don't know why, but we're just well, going to go with it. Jared you know I could to... slap you from another zip code, right? You probably could. That's, yeah, the best that's why we brought you. Listening to JR prepping these, and he's going, and this will be my response. Stop. Stop. <laughs> you cannot script yourself. Stop. She was laughing at me. It was <laughs> pathetic. But anyway, so I this week's... Yeah, yeah, somebody did. So this week's topic, we thought it'd be fun to talk about what is involved in building realistic militaries in fantasy settings. So we've brought on some noted authors and experts of the fine art of stabby stabby. So uh, why don't we let the guests introduce themselves? So we will start off with Michael Chatfield. Can you tell the listeners who might not have heard of you a little bit about yourself and what you write? Hi, I'm Mike Chatfield. Um, I am currently writing the Ten Realm series. I've written science fiction books, fantasy books, lit RPG, and uh, pretty much everything in between. Um, I'm ex-military, so I think that probably leads to a bit of the stabby stabby and uh, bang bang, uh, if you will. Um, you know, not the romance side, just the other side. Everything <laughs> explodes, and not that way. Um, I hope you're all having a good night, and uh, yeah, that's me. I like your, uh, you're going to fit in just well here with those kind of innuendos. Um, so we will clarify, he was sort of in the military, but I don't know if it counts because they let them keep their beards over in Canada. <laughs> totally, that's just me being jealous of one, that you get to have the beard and two, that you could actually grow them because I can't. No. <laughs> so next we have noted author, Mr. Rob Howe. Could you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, my name's Rob Howell. I am uh, never was in the military, so let, let's just get that out of the way here. Uh, I am, however, a military historian. My focus was on 10th century Mercia and whether or not they could support the number of troops that their law codes said that they were supposed to have. I write uh, military science fiction. I write medieval fantasy. And frankly, I write anything that sounds like an interesting challenge at, at any given point in time. Hence why he puts up with me. <laughs> and, and in addition to uh, being a military historian, he also participates in the um, sword LARPing, otherwise known as Society of Creative Anachronisms. There is I no do. sword LARPing. Sword LARPing implies that they're dressing up as a sword. Whatever. <laughs> Just go with it. Just go with it. Hey, I would stab you with my rapier. Strange things happen in the bog at Penzi, but we won't get into that. Hey, so hey, what happens in the bog stays in the bog. Exactly so. I, I got nothing. I don't even know what all that means. So we're just going to move on and introduce the next guest. We have the one, the only, the legendary Mr. Walt Robillard. 
Grandpa Walt. Grandpa Walt. What's up, guys? Um, <laughs> my background, uh, I am a full contact Scrabble champion who <laughs> likes to sell forged papers to 10th graders. Dude, you too? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's how you afforded the Ferrari. Okay. Yep. Well, I have the Ferrari of dogs. I do not have the Ferrari of cars. Close so. enough. Close enough. And and by the way, I'm happy to take you on in Scrabble. Uh, don't uh, don't threaten me with a good time because I'll do that shit in like six languages. Uh, Scrabble, Rob. Scrabble for him is like code for I'm not telling you what I did in the military. Well, so, that may that may be true. I actually did play tournament Scrabble uh, starting in high school. That's, that's a thing. thing. It's a thing. Okay, so in addition to to being a sci-fi and fantasy author, Walt is also a guru of all things kung fu, as he mentioned. But he's also a game designer, so he's had some experience creating fantasy militaries. Uh, Hazard Studios, or is it Hazard Net? What's the, I get it? It's HazardStudio.net is the uh, the uh, the website. So uh, yeah, you can jump on over there and check out some of the geeky stuff that we produce. And then, as usual, uh, Jr. Who. At one point in time, I walked too much and shot too little. Uh, I would have rather done more shooting and less walking, but that's the infantry for you. Uh, and I also mm-hmm. write sci-fi and fantasy. And then we have Seska. If you could introduce yourself if someone's just now finding this episode. Uh, well, obviously, I am one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Uh, I was in the military, so I'm a veteran. Um, I was also in the SEA as well as... Jer likes to claim I'm some sort of fantasy expert, but I'm really just a machinacious plotter about things. And uh, I somehow get other people to do my bidding. That's kind of like having an army. I have been told that I do run the most military-esque track at Dragon Con. And um, sword LARPing is now going to be a, um, a hashtag for this episode. Just for the- Sword LARPing <laughs> is not a thing. It is. It is. It is I now. will run you uh, through with my sword. See? LARPing. Now All right. good TV. Or podcasting, as it were. <laughs> I, I don't know that that would be so good. Um, it might even be legal in some countries, but I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to check with with uh, Mr. Canada. Is it hey, is hey, stabbing hey. someone with your rapier illegal where you're from? I haven't tried it yet, um, but I'm pretty sure it's called attempted murder. If no, you no, no, like no. miss, <laughs> if you miss. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what uh you know what barbarians say or if, uh you know uh i was sneaking and you're like there's no one left alive and they're like yeah there's no one to tell anyone that there was anyone here so i was sneaking i, I like that i understand this logic walt did you put him up to that nope not yet <laughs> give me time Give me time. Uh, <laughs> all right so we'll jump right in so we've talked about building believable um militaries in a fantasy setting um so how much real world experience as as you know panelists do you draw from uh when building your fantasy militaries and if you don't have the hands-on experience how do you fill the gaps in that knowledge and we'll start with you this time michael um i would say actually a big part of what i do is like i'm used to small unit tactics right um that's how the canadian militaries run and i'm used to you know, weapon systems, right? I'm not used to running around with a shield and a sword and such, right? Um, so I actually take a lot of time to try and research that kind of stuff and kind of figure out, okay, well, taking the mentality of using what I know now and then, you know, fixing it to like, how would you use magic? How would you have people work together? What would be a machine gun or a, an artillerist's position in that kind of like world? 
and then extrapolating from there. Um, yeah, like a lot of times it's just, okay, what are the roles? What are the weapon systems that you're going to use? You know, magic or whatever. And then how, what would be the best way I can think of to utilize it? Which usually turns into like the enemy, you know, figures out a way to make it better 10 times, like, you know, 10 minutes later, because then you've thought, oh, that would be a perfect counter to that move. And you're like, damn it. I thought it was nice and shiny yesterday. <laughs> okay. Um, so, Walt, um, how, you obviously have some real-world experience with your competitive um, assault, full assault Scrabble, but when you don't know the things, how do you balance your, your lack of hands-on experience with filling that gap? What lack of hands-on experience? What the hell are you talking about? Well, there you go. <laughs> that answers that. Um, you know, research is king. You know, anytime yeah. you're trying to put something together, research is king. Um, you know, the uh, the very famous example of that is Mr. Clancy. Um, the dude never served a day in the military service in his life. And yet, you know, he was questioned several times by certain alphabet agencies about where did you get this information? He's like, dude, I have a library card, you know. Um, <laughs> but I mean, um, it's, it's one of those things where um, certain things do not change over time. Um, and um, can be extrapolated backwards all the way to when uh, the very first guy hit another guy with a rock and was like, dude, this is amazing, and kept doing it. Um, <laughs> so um, some things do not change because we as people have not changed that much um, in over certain amounts of time. But um, as far as like, um, as far as like uh, uh, things like, troop movements and stuff like that and, and what it requires mm -hmm. to move big militaries um you know those those things can be worked backwards because sometimes the technology fails and you got to go old school you know mm -hmm. so that's uh yeah so uh when real world knowledge fails uh resort to research okay so uh rob you mentioned that you didn't serve in the military but you do have a degree in uh in all things dead warrior Poet Society. So, how do you go about getting your research and vetting your your sources? Well, I don't know that we have time for me to go into a full lecture about how to vet sources because that's <laughs> I, seriously. You take classes in history uh, mm -hmm. for in graduate schools, very specifically called historiography, which are entirely about vetting sources and how to get good at using sources. Um, the first thing, though, if you're going to use sources, is you have to remember that every source has a bias and that every time you add a second or third or fourth source uh, looking at any one thing, that there's going to be another layer of bias. It's going to shift, um, sort of like a Doppler effect, shift how it looks. And then you have to remember that you are also shifting it off of your own opinions and biases. So if you're, if you're doing research like that, um, you, you do have to, to pay attention to all sorts of, of opinions and where they're going with it. As for how do I incorporate that into these sorts of questions, you know, a, a lot of times it's simply asking real basic questions. Uh, there was a very seminal moment in um, medieval military history when a guy named Bernard Bachrock asked a very simple question. How long is a 5,000-person army. Like, if you have them go two by two and they're all on horseback, how long is that? And if you do the math, it suddenly realizes that's five miles. That's a five-mile-long army, essentially. Not counting baggage train, not counting uh, hangers-on. Mm -hmm. And 
these are capable. These are sizes capable to the Carolingians that they could they could have a five thousand person cavalry unit if they really pushed at it. And yet, we don't think about these things until someone asks some of these really basic questions. Now, Walt and and and, and Mike and and you guys might have all of these things like sort of ingrained in your head because you've seen those sorts of things. That's where your personal experience really kicks in. But I don't think we've seen mounted cavalry like you're thinking about it. Would be yeah. awesome. But, I but, mean, Walt might be old enough for that, but I'm not. <laughs> but but the, the point is, though, is you, you, you do know that, you know, in your heads, the lengths of army, if you're talking, and that mm-hmm. matters. And uh, so, for example, you talk Tom Clancy, you know, it's very interesting how in Red Storm Rising, some of the lengths of those armies, just as marching units, comes into play. Because he was smart enough to look at some of those questions, too. So first, thank you for giving me flashbacks to my historiography class. It's the only class in college I did not get an A in. I, I, I love those classes. I love those it was, classes. I That's actually had the role, like science and verifying facts. Well, no, it's the history of history. So it's not just studying Bob did this on this day. It's what everyone else thought about Bob doing that on that day. That's historiography. Obviously, Bob should not have done that on that day. And yes, because then we wouldn't have studied it. Uh, I will tell you that if you want a quick really good class on it on a really good book listen to or read shattered shattered sword the book about midway from the late 90s early aughts they have a really good discussion of the historiography of midway up to that point and the techniques involved in historiography there really good book about learning that particular set of skills indeed all right so Doc, what about you? How do you balance that? I mean, you, you come at this as a reader, uh, an engager of content instead of a creator of it, but. Well, I think the biggest thing is you have to make sure that um, you're very firmly set in, um, in what you're doing. So if it's a time period where you like a lot of people know about anything from like the 60s on, if you're trying to do that, you really need to make sure you're fact checking and you're making sure that you're doing it because those kind of details will destroy you, you with the reader. Um, but I think some of it is just, as Walt said, some skills are kind of universal. Uh, I was re- recently asked to read it, uh, an intro to a book, a pre prologue. And I'm like, uh, yeah, nobody takes half a day to set up camp if they're caravanning because they would never get anywhere. So there's a quick and dirty camp, and then there's, that doesn't take long, and then there's a a sit down, set up, set your camp up, and if you've ever been in an SEA event, you know the difference. (laughs) And I can tell you, it doesn't take three hours to set up a period pavilion, but it doesn't take 30 minutes either. So that's just setting it up. Okay, some of the people I've known like might take three hours because um, they're a little OCD and like ha- they, it's not a pavilion. It's a freaking house with cloth walls for some of them. Okay. Bob knows what I'm talking about. There are people who take four poster beds to, to Penzik and other events. It's insane. But I think that's one of the big things is so look and see what was plausible. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote an interesting article. Apparently the weight that a soldier carries that an infantryman carries has not changed in hundreds and hundreds of years. But the amount of stuff, if you were to write it out, is like ages long because of how we've advanced 
technology and made lighter materials and everything. So I just thought that was very interesting that our infantry still carries the same as Roman legionnaire and weight. Don't worry, we right. still feel it. <laughs> oh, I know. But your back injury is not service connected. Yeah, I was actually just thinking along those lines of all the uh, all the injuries suffered by Roman legionnaires that we find in these uh, in these archaeological uh, ex excavations. Now that match, I uh, I believe that match what some of you infantrymen might currently experience. Oh, so, I believe if we X-ray all of the guys, they definitely have those same injuries. Oh yeah. So I would say that my advice, if you're looking to get hands-on experience, sometimes you can read things in a book, but not everyone can process data that way. Some people are the more tactile learners and there's a burgeoning new field called, they're calling it experimental archeology. span um, They have some, some historians that have said, huh, we've read about this thing. And it started with when they were trying to build one of the Roman, um, um, I can't remember the name of it, but it fires a bunch of arrows at once. And it sounds really devastating when you think about it. So somebody built one to specs and they fired it and they found out you were more likely to accidentally run them off the road with the thing than you were to hit them with the arrows fired from the thing. And so that got uh, sort of started at probably about the 80s, this push to do more hands-on um, history study, like actually wearing the armor and marching and seeing what that's like. Is that uh, why you went into the infantry? You wanted to learn how to march? Sure. I was the sucker who said, sign up here. But anyway, that's another story for another day. But yeah, so I would say there are plenty of ways to get hands-on experience, even if just so, you know, some Uber nerd who spent their whole life dedicating it to portraying the, you know, the war of 1812 infantrymen. So they have someone to talk to. And if you ask them, if you find them, they will tell you because they want someone other than their wife to talk to with about that. And their wife, hey, their wife wants them to, hey. someone, to have someone else to talk yeah. to about that too. Probably. All right, so uh, when we're building these these fantasy militaries, um, where do you start? Do you start with the world, the character, uh, the military itself, or something wildly different? And we'll start with you, um, Walt. So are we talking from a story standpoint, or are we talking from like straight-out world-building standpoint? Because from a story standpoint, it's going to depend on what the story encompasses. I mean, if I'm talking about like a little village that has to invade another little village, that's going to be totally different than, you know, an entire kingdom, you know, that in includes fiefdoms and, and, and different uh, uh, sections and, you know, the urban side versus the rural side and where soldiers are conscripted or, or enlisted from, you know, that kind of deal. So it's all going to depend on what the story is asking for. If you're talking like world building, like, I'm going to fabricate this entire world before I ever start writing a single word of my novel. Yeah, go ahead, nerd. Yeah, you 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 keep going broke. You know what I mean? Um, but I mean, it, it, it's going to depend on on what you're talking about. So, which one are you talking about? A story standpoint or a world building standpoint? So, do you just pants all your military stuff? What do you mean? Well, it's going to depend. Like if somebody's hiring me to write a story about a kingdom invading another kingdom, that is going to, that is going to fr create a frame of reference for me that I'm now going to have to uh, research depending on what we're talking about. Like, are we talking middle ages, dark ages, you know, um, bronze age? Or, uh, what are we talking about? Because you're going to uh, involve different levels of military before I even get boots on the ground. 
you know, different types of equipment, different types of movement rates, you know, that kind of deal. So the, the base level of what it would take for you to make it believable, where do you think you have to start? Because obviously that doesn't matter how much world building you do if no one ever sees it. Time, time period is where I would start. You know, um, are we talking about a medieval military versus some something like um, the guys who held the pass at Thermopylae? You know, um, at one period you're talking about Bronze Age, but the amount of clothing they wore underneath that armor to prevent chafing and this and that, and the amount of equipment carried is going to different be different than a conscripted medieval um, footman. So um, their amount of range is going to differ. The amount of like equipment that they're going to carry is going to differ. Um, movement to different uh, um, water sources and food sources and how much they're going to be able to move from one place to another is going to be different. So definitely, I would start with time period of what you're trying to simulate. Because even with like a totally, like my place is not totally earth at all. I mean, you know, we just dress alike, fight alike, and, and there are humans, So, but it's not totally Earth, you know? Yeah, I would start with the, the time period you're trying to emulate because that is going to inform a lot of what um, goes into that. Like, for example, um, water storage. The water storage and transport of a Spartan soldier is going to differ than the water storage and transport of a medieval knight and his and his retinue. And the faster water spoils, the, the decrease you have in range from where they start to where they're trying to go. So it, it informs like how far they can range to, what do you call it, um, get in there and, and like take over another kingdom or defend another kingdom. You know, yeah, see, totally agrees with me. You know, so, but, <laughs> the dog charmer, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's Walt dog charmer. So, do you think that still applies when you see um, authors and world builders that want to do like mashups of a little bit of Japan and a little bit of Viking and a little bit of medieval? Do you do you still end up with that same calculation? Well, what level of technology you're talking about? Because once again, fresh water informs how far you can move an army. Without fresh water you can't move an army to a new like if you decide to invade a new location you better pray there's fresh water either along the way or in place where you get there because if you can't take over a water source you're going to dehydrate your army long before you even get there has everyone here played the game total war no or knows of total war yeah the game yeah so like it's basically like you have like your single units and such and you can do those kinds of mashups I think like the biggest thing is, you, is it, it's a jigsaw, right? You know, different components and there's like, you have your water, you have your food, you have your, like your units, like who's the people behind it. Then you have your gear and stuff and you really break it down into those components. And then the, the really fun thing of like, when you're saying like, oh, well, if you have the Japanese and the Vikings going, then it's like, okay, well you just take their components and then you take the components of whoever they're facing and you just go, Okay, what's their strengths and weaknesses and what do they know about the other people and how can they utilize that and what's their ideas going to be because you know like a viking is going to have a very different way actually viking and japanese would actually have a pretty similar um attacking method because you think about it they got on boats and they went and attacked other people so like they're around the other side of the world but then it's also a change in okay 
which time period are we going through? Are, do we have samurai where they're having their layered armor and they can't go as far? Or are we having, like, it's it's a super fun, I guess it's it's the fun questions, you know, of, like, you have the mashup of, okay, we've got these guys over here. Can they beat these guys over here? Are we going to have a problem? But then also weaving in, how does it follow with the story? How do you match those components so that the story is the thing that shines through, right? And let's talk about tech level a little bit. We, we often look at and say, for example, we said medieval a number of times. Mm-hmm. But let's take the, the SCA sort of version of medieval, which is, I will argue with, but it's a useful way. That's a thousand years. And in mm-hmm. that thousand years, there are huge changes in the, the tech level of the weaponry, of the um, logistics, of the ability to, to produce enough uh, weapons to be able to be out, you know, be out there on the field. And, and that, that changes a lot faster than I think we realize because we get this oh, idea yeah. that it's, you know, 10th century Mercia is, you know, still medieval. And so is, you know, 14th century, you know, the battle of Cressy and, and, and Agincourt and, and, you know, the technology is huge and that's just you mm-hmm. know, 400 years. So you, you really have to delve really deep into what kind of materials are available to them, readily available to them, uh, what kind of terrain, they come from if it's open and flat then they're going to rely on some sort of uh uh, horse or whatever you know whatever Mm -hmm. beast you use in your world uh to create that some something similar like that if it's heavily forested they're probably not they're probably going to be looking at something more like archers you know you've brought up the spartans a couple of times one of the reasons the greeks use infantry so much is that it's such difficult terrain for example to do horses yeah. and the chariots that that were coming in from the, the you know from the steps those bounce somewhere in the in, you know in the balkans because of just the difficulty of, of keeping those going and so you you got to look at, at terrain you got to look at you know what's available to them resource wise you got to look at cultural things uh, it all builds up into it. Now, where do you start? For me, I start with characters. I want characters first. And mm-hmm. I'm a pantser, like what, what Suska mentioned earlier. And so I start with characters that I, wanna, that I want to see go to battle. And then after that, I build up everything around. Okay, so since you mentioned characters, I'm going to throw out a question because JR loves it when I go off script. Um <laughs> so what do you feel makes for a good rank i had this discussion once with somebody and they told me that the reason like all of david what most of 99 percent of david weber's characters are officers is because enlisted don't have any good stories to tell and i looked at them (laughs) (laughs) yeah and they're like well they're they can't perform the role of being a pivotal character that shapes the universe and i'm going you know, the deed of Pachysandria, what a pack scenario by Elizabeth Moon, it starts off with her running away from home and goes through her going through basic training to her being identified as a paladin. If you follow, it's not, it's three books, so it's not all in one book, but mm-hmm. um, like, what do you guys feel is either the perfect rank to have your character at so that they're getting enough of the, the big picture, but, or is it okay to just focus on that small picture that maybe, uh, equivalent of a private or a corporal would have. 
Well, I mean, the, the thing to understand, too, is that... And, and yes, I did cut the guy off. He wasn't allowed anymore. My <laughs> the, the thing to, to understand is that if you've been in the military for longer than five minutes, you're not going to base 90% of what you're doing on any officer anyway. <laughs> it's it's just not going to happen. Because Where's this, Where's this map? Sorry. Oh, sorry, Lieutenant. It's not Let even, me just turn yeah. you to the but it's not even that. I mean, hey, I to, want my lieutenant to order a really big microwave to to melt really big sticks of butter, and then I got yelled <laughs> at by my NCO. <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, when you look at it, you know the 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 officers that you're going to see on the ground; those guys are middle managers. They're going to point a lot, and they're going to tell, tell grab all the squad leaders to be like, "Look, you guys got to do this, this, and this. Let's make it happen, right?" Yep. And they're they're knife handing, and they're doing all this stuff, you know. Whereas um, it's it's always going to be those those guys leading squads and teams and whether those be officers in your stories or whatever. But I mean, like the the officers who are leading like big groups of men, they have other shit to do rather than than get involved in a fight. Yeah. Um, I was recently uh, called in to do some technical advising on a book and it was and I'm like, why is the officer doing this? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, OK, so these guys are supposed to be Marines patterned after american marines correct and he's like yeah i said you have this officer doing this shit no that's not the officer's job he goes well what do you mean and i said well the officer's job is to take the command that he's given and disseminate that to all of the people below him so that they can go off and do the thing and then he stands there as the middleman passing info back and forth that's his job his job is not to, to grab a gun, stand, put his foot all Captain Morgan style, and point and go, follow me, you know, because that's not just, just not going to happen. That, that, <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I mean, you know, in the movies, stop. Before you embarrass yourself, shut your fucking mouth and listen to what I'm trying to tell you, you know. And that's the problem that you have 99% of the time when somebody's trying to get into writing or they're trying to get into building a role-playing game or a video game or whatever. They're getting all this information that that a good percentage of the time is coming from popular media where they mm -hmm. didn't bring in a technical advisor. And if they did bring in a technical advisor, a lot of the stuff that they that they were told were thrown out because some producer somewhere said, no, I don't think that's how it goes. Yeah, okay, because your lisp is really identifying you as a man of action there, snarky. Hey, you hey, know? some of the best soldiers I know had lips. Uh, they did have well, lips. I, I hope they had lips, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> lips. <laughs> but I, I mean, think this is where don't ask, don't tell really kicks in. <laughs> right? I, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't one of those things where, where you're sitting there and you're getting you, you know, you're getting your information from somebody and you're just gonna throw it away. I mean the Oh yeah, the, no. Yeah, you have the, to recognize where your experts are and that they, their opinion, whether <laughs> you want to hear it, is very valid. I had that experience one time where Somebody was trying to write a sci-fi book in a uh, mill SF thing and from a very civilian perspective. And they actually thought that the captain would be reading the daily news on the announcements of the what? show. Oh, the captain? Yeah, because the, well, the theory was that they were like, you know, the, the world was set where aliens, they thought aliens were going to come and invade and they never showed up. And then suddenly, like a hundred years later, they do show up. But so the ship, the captain's been reading the news out loud to the crew for the morning announcements. And I'm like, for a no. hundred years. No. <laughs> no. He got no, no. real bored. would ever do that. They have better things to do. They, like, wash they have their a whole, hair. Uh, like wash their hair. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you know, you do have to differentiate what their what their role is. I mean, if if I'm writing the Foresters, I'm writing Colonel Edmonds as mostly doing planning and getting his troops into place, like what you, what Walt was talking about. Mm-hmm. Most of my combat is platoon level, so yeah. I do have a lieutenant who's who's taking command there, but a lot of it's run by the sergeant and a lot of it's teams that you know that fighting next to each other. But to put that fight in context, I have to have Edmonds and uh, Major Sheridan, his XO, and the other people, I have to have them talking about making sure that we get them in the right places to do these certain things. And so when I'm writing that particular um, mill science fiction, I'm dancing back and forth between levels. So I think the answer to your question is what makes the story work better because you know if, if it is uh, you know uh, airman snuffy that might be a great story but if you're having airman snuffy and you're talking about for example uh you know making decisions for the eighth air force like uh, casey azell did in minds of men that's not going to be him that better be some you know some general or, or colonel at least so make it work for the story yeah, that just shows that that you've done your research, though, and you understand the position of a uh, you know either battalion commander, brigade commander, and his XO versus um, you know that battalion commander or that battalion level commander is going to be like, I'm leading this away team. Sit your ass in that chair. You are not going anywhere near that transporter. You know, Will Riker left the ship way more often than he should. Right, oh, the yeah. captain left the the ship way more than he should have. Yeah, but I liked the captain, so it was more interesting when he did it. So that that's where sometimes you can do that kind of stuff. You can break the rules if you know you're breaking them, but then you have to have someone say, like, no, that's not how it should be. And as long as you acknowledge, I think, for the reader that you're making those mistakes and you know it's a mistake, they'll generally go with it if there's a plot reason for it. And you can sometimes well, get away with that if you've got incompetent leadership and that's part of the story or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's the other thing is, is where you get your information. As, as Michael pointed out, that the uh, captain reading the announcements, very civilian cruise ship, not very Navy warship kind of thing. And so knowing the, the source of where you're getting yeah, your information. I, but some things are universal because this guy looked at me and he goes, well, you were in the army. And I went, uh-huh, but I'm not brain dead. <laughs> I, it, oh. I was actually thinking about this when I was reading um, uh, Jonathan Brazy. He's uh, he's an ex-Marine. He's he's done a lot of stuff. Um, uh, hold on yeah. a second. Wait, we, we we need to apologize uh, that uh, Mr. Chatfield is from Canada and doesn't know oh. that he needs to say former Marine and not ex-Marine because all know. American ex-Marines are dead. Continue. Okay. Former <laughs> Marine. Um, yeah, so he, when I was... Uh, was reading a book that he had done and I was going through it and I had this thought, and this is actually a couple of days ago. And I was like, we kind of really like a lot of military books go through boot camp if it's written by military guys, mostly because it's in, it's going through that socket. It's bonding to the character. Um, I don't know why we subject ourselves to it again. It's because um, it's like a, it's like a birth. Yeah, it, it is. It's like everybody in the civilian sector talks about like elementary school Everybody in the military talks about boot. Mm-hmm. Only up to about E3. After about E4, you start having blanket parties to shut up those privates so they never talk about boot camp. 
Well, think, this one time in basic, wow, where did he, where did that new private go? I don't know. He disappeared. Uh, yeah. Banging in that wall locker. <laughs> that's right up there with in my old unit. We used to do it this way. Like, we don't yep. That's how you get um, disappeared. <laughs> but I, I think from a story perspective, like if you want to keep your characters a man of action, like we talked about, they have to be at certain rank threshold. And so by starting them at the beginning, it sort of gives you that chance to show them doing more things. Um, or you could just, you know, have every book where it resets where they're still a corporal for some reason. Twelve years later, maybe hey, they hey, like to I drink. That guy. Yeah, he liked to drink. Um, he liked but, to do a lot of things. <laughs> Leave it at that. So, so since we we talked about boot camp and how that sometimes translates, do you see a lot of those boot camp phase type stories in fantasy? I see it a lot in sci-fi, but I don't think I've seen it in the fantasy world. Seska uh, brought up one right away: Dita Pacinarian. That's it's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. It's also if you have uh, if you change boot camp to what's it called magical school or magical academy, right? It's the same thing, you know. It's the elementary school of it's it's that birth, it's that transition, you know, um, of you know kid to adult essentially in that world. Okay. Fair enough. I hadn't considered the magic school being as an equivalent stand-in. That works. So uh, back, we also talked about you know boot camp with the modern soldier. Why he was subject himself to it. So let's let's sort of dig into that. How much of our modern military experience, uh, be it tangential research or or lived, translates into a fantasy type world? But well, we still camp outside. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! Well, I mean, you gotta you you get the big difference to take away, especially in uh, in Mr. Chatfield's um, experience as well as my own and Doc and Jr. Um, we we come from countries that have an all volunteer military mm -hmm. versus uh, conscripted or uh, uh, demanded for citizenship style. Mm -hmm. um, so you're going to have a much different experience versus um, how, like, um, you know, conscripted soldiers in um, the medieval and, uh, you know, the what's after the Middle well, Ages. Even like Israel, I, I knew a couple people but as vets and, and one or two when they were still in who served in the IDF. They have a very different mentality towards it because i can't yeah. think of another one where it's required for citizenship right now italy okay. switzerland maybe north koreans definitely yeah, yeah switzerland, switzerland actually well, has a Korea. really interesting yeah uh thing uh, and mm -hmm. how they they um confer citizenship through military service and like uh, almost as uh as an award for uh, your military service, they demand you keep your rifle, keep it updated, and you have to come out to shoot every few years, almost to, to like acknowledge that former military service and see if it's still sharp. I always thought that was very, very interesting and in how they did it and the kind of esprit de corps and, and um, patriotism that engenders to their to their citizenry. It's, it's really kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say it's interesting that you'll see generations have different guns. So each of them have, yeah, you'll have like grandfathers, yes. great grandfathers, and fathers. They'll each have their different guns. So I was watching this Swiss documentary on it, and they were like, 
this guy's like, yeah, like I've got my guns and then that's my dad's, that was my great grandfather's and you're going through like three or four generations of guns. And it's like from like a, a bolt action up to, I think it was a SIG 552 commando. Right. And it was like, okay, like, you know, it, it, I thought that was kind of cool as well. That's the, the hard part about modern, our modern military is we have to give the guns back when we're done. They don't let us keep them. No, why. we just go buy our own. Yeah. And then spend True. enough money to uh, outfit We're a car. We're not supposed to admit that. We're not supposed to admit that. No, all this tragic fine. boating accident. Mm -hmm. <laughs> all my guns drowned. Yeah, terrible. <laughs> uh, so, I was going to actually say that that the answer to that question of of what can transfer to a certain extent, again, depends upon the the culture of the uh, the country that you're coming from. And this is true whether medieval or modern. Mm -hmm. Just talking about the Swiss culture there. I mean, the old English culture of expectation of, uh, at some level, that all the freedmen had weapons, and that was how you determined you were free. That's very early on in the Germanic uh, uh, time period. But that idea then translates to that's the entire militia, and then later on that grows into there, there's a little bit more professionalism in them, but still the English feared is full of, uh, you know, a completely different um, uh, infantry than, for example, the infantry of a few hundred years later after the Norman Conquest. So uh, we keep talking about infantry, and, and I was remembering a comment that you, that, um, David Weber actually posted earlier in he, that this week about how it is not, in his opinion, accidental that um, the that a representative democracies both stemmed out of countries where people were readily able to arm themselves, particularly with distance weapons, um, like bows and arrows and cross bolts. Um, how important is it? Because we've been focusing a lot on the infantry. So is it just naturally assumed that magic will take your long distance role in it? Or do you, do you still want to have that, those kind of long distance range units? Well, bows were were in existence well, BC, you know, before Christ. I understand that, but we haven't talked about them yet tonight. Well, I, I mean, any infantry is going to have support units, so artillerymen, uh, archers, um, crossbowmen, uh, crossbows. Uh, uh, if I can remember correctly, originated China in the BC era. Um, they're much earlier than people remember. Uh, yeah, the, the, the modern crossbow, not the modern, but the the medieval, late medieval crossbow is is. A different construct yeah so i mean you know those would be support units because what you would do is you would pepper an enemy infantry line with archers um at different angles and flanks and and stuff like that to disrupt incoming infantry and cavalry um and but we also have to remember too that um despite what all the movies and and all of the you know swashbuckling and blah 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 will tell you the principal you uh, uh the principal weapon of any tried and true military is not the sword it's not it's too short a weapon it gets you too close unless you now i've been studying swordsmanship since i was 14 right and, and uh, varying different styles wait I, I thought that's when they still made the swords yeah, wow. Well, I'm a nerd, but 14 BC, yeah. Right. So, I mean, we're talking about a weapon that if you are not intimately skilled with this weapon, mm -hmm. you are going to get severely hurt. So, you will have one engagement where you can engage an enemy military and then you're done. And it doesn't it doesn't really factor in. Well, and swords are not um 
they're, 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 they can be a little fussy. They're, and they're expensive. The yeah. Same they're, size, same shape does not mean same quality or same balance. Correct. And they're expensive. So you have to get to know those. So like things like the spear. The spear uh, is the a bow, huge weapon. A oh, huge yeah. weapon. You know, um, uh, you know, anything that will give you length. Because just remember, length equates to time. Right. So um, if you want a great example and we've done this, um, one of the uh, the martial arts that I did uh, and and so and still do a little bit is um, is considered uh, old Japanese battlefield stuff. Right. So one of the first things you learn is not the sword. You learn the spear first. Yeah. Um, you eventually learn uh, up to black powder weapons. Right. So the the idea was, you know, give you a middle range weapon to learn first. And then when you learn long range and short range, you see the difference in time that it takes to deal with an opponent. So, like, for example, with a spear against a spear or a spear against a sword, I'm going to have roughly the same amount of time. But with the, when the second you decrease the, the length for the other guy, if I have the spear and he's got the sword, I have an advantage over him. Right, he might be more maneuverable, but I can keep him at distance. Um, it's the same thing with archers. If I have an advancing infantry line and I have something like a ballista, a catapult, uh, anything like that as siege weapons, I can direct those for incoming infantry. And um, a good artilleryman back then could change angles of attack, angles of approach. They could uh, move the weapons in certain ways to decimate lines of infantry coming in. And then after they've been beaten up by those long extreme range weapons, they get into that middle distance before they can even close with the, with the infantry that's defending. And then they get peppered by archers. And the crazy thing, I mean, you see all these these things online now of like, I'm going to shoot an arrow of a war bow at a breastplate. See how ineffective this is? It bounced. You have to remember, archery is not a direct line weapon like a, like a firearm. It is created in an arc, mm -hmm. which is why it's mm -hmm. called archery, right? So... Mm -hmm. The thing is, those 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 breastplates, all that heavy steel armor, was made to stop direct attack from the front side or rear, but not from the top. All of these arrows coming in at a high trajectory would a lot of times pierce spaces that were used for straps and pauldrons and holders and all this stuff, and you would just get decimated by incoming arrow arrow loose. Uh, arrow, uh, I think Volley. losers, yeah, volleys, losers. Yeah. Um, but they would come in, and these just these rains of arrows would mm -hmm. would decimate troops that, if they were one on one, would just just rain down on the field. But because you had archers, uh, those arrows coming down, that's not what the armor was made for. So it was like a force equalizer. So uh, even even with magic, things like bows. Um, uh, siege and artillery weapons um, would also still play a pivotal role because if magic is as complicated as many authors make it, you're going to have a very limited number of people who can uh, accommodate and, and use it. So you're still going to need people who can do things like shoot uh, arrows or shoot ballista or shoot um, um, arbalists, uh, crossbowmen. You know, you're going to need all these people still to kind of to to direct that kind of fire to give those magicians time to, you know, whip up their little fireballs and throw them all over the place. <laughs> plus, plus, I'd say like two things. One, a spear is can be very cheap. Yes. It's like you can have like, like if you go back in time, right, like 
trees were all around a lot more. They were a lot older, right? Like that, I think there there's a, a church that burned down, a cathedral that burned down in France, and they can't rebuild it with French wood right now because they don't have it in big enough sizes in that age because they cut it all down for ships. Um, but so again, we're going back to the technology of it. Okay, so first of all, you have a spear, which is about the same size as a person. Then it got to like spears got to the size of like it was four men tall. Oh, a Volge, yeah. Yeah, it, and it was huge. And they could use that for not only, okay, are we going to defeat infantry, but we can defeat a cavalry charge now. If you stick your butt in, you hold it, and, and they're going to have – the horses are just going to run into it. The people who are riding it, they, they're on that train now. Um, but then really a spear could be I've got a really long piece of wood. I've sharpened it on one end. I've put it in a fire and, and sharpened it up. Like it got expensive when you started to put metal on it, but the metal would then be reinforced by the wood instead of where you had most of the time it was wrought iron, right? You didn't have steel, which only came around really when the Vikings started putting bones into their fireplaces. But then, actually, oh, go ahead. Oh well, it, I, I the other thing I would say is is also I guess infantry is your most basic unit, right? And then technology has evolved, navy air forces as we have them now but there were other units that were created out of that technology like artillerists and stuff like when we talk about infantry you're usually about or there's one guy on the ground with a gun but then again all of that other systems other units have all been created by technology and advances and it'll also sometimes remove units because of technology advances yeah so you were talking about the way a, a pike can be used as an example of how or a spear or, or you know a large pointy stick can be mm -hmm. used against cavalry. The perfect example of that would be the Scottish victory over the English at Bannockburn, where yeah. poorly equipped, Elvis. You know, not very well trained at the time, uh, guys with spears defeated what was arguably one of the best cavalries in the world at the time. Hosh Elvis. And, and uh, yeah. And so, so we, and, go ahead. Oh, go, uh, sorry, go ahead, JR. I, I thought and, you were done. And I was going to say, as far as what, what you talked about with the spear or with the arrow hitting armor on, most of those tests also dismiss the amount of damage blunt force trauma can cause outside mm -hmm. of puncture wound. Having been shot in the chest when it hit my sappy plate, that still hurt like a mother, and I had trouble breathing for a week. Like it cracked three ribs. So oh, yeah. it, you know, it, you know, the armor protects you. Sure, even if that that analogy is good, it still is not letting you come away uninjured. Mm -hmm. And and let's talk about um, well, quickly. There's been a lot of studies on archery, depending upon the kind of bow, the kind of wood, and the kind of armor, because mm -hmm. the, the period, the primary sources vastly differ in which, what the results are. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, for example, the, the U-bow as opposed to a, a lighter weight bow against different kinds of armor. So those studies really vary there. But I was going to get back to something Walt said about the importance of artillery and artilleries, you know, having had the wonderful pleasure of seeing ballista bolts and uh, uh, catapult rocks coming down on top of you at, you know, at some of these large SCA wars. It's not the same, of course, as real life, but it is, it feels pretty interesting when you see something coming down from, from that high. A lot of what it does is it breaks up um, formations and it forces infantry to be rasher and faster than they oftentimes want to be and make bad decisions. Uh, so, get into what, black and you can, 
it, once you they get into the block, they just make, they start running, and then you know it's it's a morale game at that point. Right, because nobody wants to stand and get get hit by ballista bolts and catapult rocks, and yet from a tactical perspective, standing and accepting the incoming missile fire, whether it's arrows or whatever, is your best chance of success. It's really hard to do, mm-hmm. even when you know you're going to walk back and, and have a beer with that archer or that catapult guy later on. It's really hard to do. Did we just break JR? Oh, there he is. Nope, I'm trying to mute around the dog's barking. He well, wants to when Elvis speaks. Yeah, let, let that beautiful hound do his thing. <laughs> so, he's probably got more wisdom than all of us put together. Damn well, he certainly thinks he has. So, you know, we've talked about like, you know, the kind of tactics and the equipment they use, but what are those little details that we can add or that somebody can add depending on what oh. end of the uh the page you're on to make that military feel flushed out even, you know, to the uninitiated who doesn't know, you know, all of the the minutia of background. You Armor didn't bites. read the scripted yeah, question. Yeah. <laughs> nice. No, I, I would totally agree with that. Yeah. Armor armor bites. Yeah. yeah. Those, those places on after you wear armor time and time again, you have calluses and, and wounds that never heal because your armor is is chafing right there and you just get used to it. You know, oh, I'm bleeding from my right above my, you know, elbow where my shoulder cop gets me. Oh, mm-hmm. I fought tonight. I mean, literally, it's that that simple. Yeah, it's like um, I, it's interesting. Of anyone that plays American football, or anyone that was in the Roman Legion, or anyone that was in the American military, if you could have, can grow a beard, you usually feel a little line that's underneath your chin. And that's usually from where it's just been rubbing there constantly. Or you were doing like the, the Vietnam clip, you know, where someone has like, instead of the actual, the chin guard, you, someone's pulled it underneath and you get those people who are rubbing it underneath. I hated that. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, you get like those markings or those familiarities between everyone of like, there's that common bond definitely of suffering together. Right. Yeah. And that's the thing too, like, you know, we were talking about earlier that, you know, there are some things that are universal across militaries across time. And some of those things, like you're going to have the dude showing up to formation cocked out of his mind. It's Mm -hmm. just going to happen. And you're going to have his buddies try to hold him up. You know, you're going to have, I feel attacked. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have the dude who is there his first day and um, doesn't, know how he made it through the first battle and is stumbling through the battlefield after everything is said and done. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, you're going to have the kid that after his first full fight, you'll have soldiers betting on the backside, like, nope, 20. No, 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 no. Put me in for 10. Put me in for 10. And the kid comes up and is like, what are you guys betting on? And then he profusely vomits because of the adrenaline dump. Mm-hmm. And they all start cheering and start paying Again, out. Again, I feel like Right? So, I mean, there are certain things over time where if you, like, talk to guys who have really been in a fight, if you talk to guys who have really done, like, hard movement through 
unforgiving terrain in 45 pounds of armor, six pound weapon, 20 pounds of ammunition, a hundred centiliters of water and a uniform that doesn't fit because it's one, it's one size fit. Most their boots suck because they didn't have the money to go out and get a set of Oakley's or something like that. Talk to those guys and find out what those things, because nine times out of 10, those, those little tiny minute details, they're going to remember even 20 years later. Um, mm -hmm. There's a great book called inside the Delta force. Um, and uh, it is, it is a fantastic, fantastic look about the origins of that particular military organization. Right. So the, um, those guys from soft D um, still to this day, talk about the guy who walked his feet off in selection. Right. And it's like a famous story that they tell again and again and again. And you can read about it in that book. And I remember reading that book and thinking to myself, dude, if that had happened in any of the selection courses I had, I had gone through, that dude would have been legendary, even if he didn't complete it, you know? Um, and it's those little tweaks, like you get those, that guy that, you know, um, he's taken 14 arrows and he's still here, you know, it just, and then, you know, you, you get to know him a little while and you, you realize that the reason he was able to to 14 arrows is because, um, he secretly likes to wear a woman's corset underneath the armor, you know? And it was like, it was like little weird details like that, that, you know, <laughs> would, would uh kind of like permeate through like militaries throughout time you know i don't know anybody who did the corset thing but i mean you know um <laughs> it's, it's kind of strange that you know you have all these little things and like practical jokes soldiers love to pray practical jokes on the new guy you know you know like all right listen i need you to go to the motor pool and get me a box of grid squares and then the kid shows up to the motor pool and then gets set back and he's just like they were making fun of me for like 20 minutes it's like oh they're going easy on you they made fun don't of worry me just don't get us the brass magnet please yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> You know, or, or like uh, in the airborne, we used to send kids for riser grease for your parachutes. You know, <laughs> make sure you go get the riser grease because if, if, it, if it's not greased right, it won't come out right. And mm -hmm. you'd be up in the plane, you know, days later and be like, and be like, dude, did you grease these? <laughs> Shut up. You know, <laughs> it's those it's those little, little things, those little digs we like to give each other as soldiers that um, even years later, you're just sitting there and you remember them because they're funny as hell. I mean, we had a um, when I went to um, the 82nd Airborne, we had an area called Area J. It was just an open training area. There wasn't anything there, just a bunch of trees and some fire breaks. You would routinely send a cat out when he was new to look for the key to Area J. Right. So I'm on CQ one day and one of my buddies sends this private up and he's like, Hey, uh, can, uh, the Sergeant so-and-so sent me for the key for area J. And I was just having a shit day. So I was like, you know something? Fuck this guy. I said, come here. I want you to go over to here. I want you to find this guy. I want you to talk to him and ask him for the key for that area. You cool? He's like, thank you very much, Sergeant. And he goes off on his way. About an hour later, I get this angry e irate e6 running up into my face and he's like he's like oh my god what the hell is this too and i'm like that's the key to area j he goes there's a key what the fuck i mean he was so pissed that this kid came back with an actual key and it was the key to the water pumping station at the end of that area i knew the guy in facilities management and i just hey just grab the key he, he won't ask why if you tell him it's for me right 
And now you return the key a couple of days later, you buy the guy a beer, but that's still, that's still something like to this day, when I talk to my friend, Leo, I'm like, Hey, you got the key to area J shut up, <laughs> you know? And it's, it's funny even, even today. And, and that is something that has been going on through militaries, you know, like, uh, yeah, go get the pricky seven, you know, and you're telling, the kid it's, you're telling it's, it, it, you're telling the kid it's a radio. <laughs> it's not I, I knew somebody who had got it sent to go get the flight line. <laughs> That's oh no, no 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 no! The joke was on them. What they do? There was a place that were that was literally ripping up their flight line. He came back with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they spin up the... I, I I got fairly lucky with not having too many of those pulled on me. Uh, one or two. I will admit did what actually the one that I was particularly great was there's in the motor pool, a thing called a donkey dick, which is a very yes. long funnel. And I was told to go get the donkey dick. And I looked at them and I went, no, that's not a thing. <laughs> and, and I go in and uh, they're like, no, it really, really is. And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> I go into the motor pool where you go to get the freaking um, mechanic stuff. And I'm talking to the mechanics and they look at me and they're like, what? And I was known in the barracks. I cooked. I had like frozen cookie cookie dough in my freezer all the time. If you and if you worked on any of uh, my 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 anything that I was signed for, like um, the FLA, yeah. And I I would and if you had to work late, I would make sure you ate even if the defect was closed. I would cook you dinner myself. That's dope. They loved me. You do, you always take care of Doc. <laughs> yeah. But but that only works when you take care of your guys too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but I looked at them and I went, I have to ask for something. And I swear to God, if you mess with me on this, I will not be feeding you. You will be having food poisoning. And they went, what do you need? And this, this new NCO is like staring, like, why is she coming in threatening my guys? And I'm like, what did I need a donkey dick? And they went, no, that is actually a real thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it is the extension hose for a fill fillable can for that. We put mo gas in. <laughs> yeah. I was honestly convinced this thing did not exist. But it, I guess it's just, it's heightened moments of humanity, right? Right. Cause you're, you're in a pressure cooker. And you just have moments of, you know what? Like, oh my fuck, have I got chafing? And then you like, like you know, like there. And there's a certain amount of like you'll talk about it with like family and friends. And then there's the guy who's also like, yeah, dude, like right here. And you're just like, yeah, right there. He's like, you're like, what are you doing? And you're like, just standing there, just like, I have no idea, man. This hurts so goddamn bad. It's like you should have fucking washed yesterday. Um, before you went into that ruck march, but you know, now, now we're here, let's try and fix you up. But it's those moments of humanity of we're in this together or let's, you know, it's kind of those ceremonies of acceptance. Right. Um, it, it, but it is, it's just humanity and it's more raw form, you know, without the, you know, thank you, please. And all of this, it's what the fuck is this man? And oh, you would be surprised. Sorry. You, could, you would be surprised if you read between the lines how much of those little moments appear in medieval and classical primary sources that are talking mm -hmm. about soldiers in action. You have to read between the lines because they don't necessarily just say, oh man, you know, Odysseus was chafing right there or anything like that. But you read between the lines, there's a lot of that there. 
because oh, the, yeah. the things that you guys, you know, the practical jokes, the, the, the armor bites, the, the humanity bits, those are eternal. I mean, if you're going to write military science fiction or, or military fiction of any type, whether it's fantasy or science fiction or, or historical, they're always there. You have to include, include them. Uh, I don't think, I don't think humans can, can do that. There's actually cases in, in the Roman empire before, well, actually technically the Roman Republic before it became an empire where some guy tried to claim to have been a Roman legionnaire to get status when he went into one of the surrounding territories to get some of that land. And one of the reasons they knew he hadn't served aside from the tattoo, which is debated whether everyone actually got or not was the, the lack of chafing on the neck because their neck would yeah. build up, uh, scar tissue because of where the armor hit them on right. a repetitive basis. Um, and that's one of the things I think you get with, with the military. You see too often everyone wants to write their, their military is full of Rambos. Like the reason mm. that made such a good story because John Rambo was, was the exception, right? Like the average soldier, that's not them. The average soldier isn't a superhero. They're just Joe from down the block who didn't really want to be there in the first place but got caught up in events and sort of has to go along to get along. And I, you see too often everyone wants to write, you know, the Avengers versus just the random rank and file. And that makes it sometimes hard to believe. I but think. that's why Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was so popular for so long. Yeah. Well, that so. and they finally stopped giving away all the good pieces of the commercials. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, uh, and, and talking about that universality going back from what's the same now versus what was the same back then. Uh, in excavations of Hadrian's Wall, they still found the, the Roman legionnaires, the privates, drawing dicks on the wall. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, some, some things are just, it's, you know, we draw almost sharpies on people's foreheads, but it's, it's the their same. their best friend. Well, uh, you know, if, if we want to want to talk about how important uh, dicks were to the medieval world, go look at um, uh, pilgrimage tokens uh, to places like Santiago de Compostela that are often pewter uh, disc, uh, penises with wings. You see that quite often. Penises with wings? Yep. <laughs> Winged dicks are, are a fairly common um, pilgrimage uh, badge. You know uh, this kind of this kind of humor is going to break Jr. Right? This is about the point where he, he oh, can't this, talk. Oh, I didn't know that. That's like an extra bonus. <laughs> so it's it, like, like free Red Bull, but it's still the same thing. It'll give you wings. <laughs> and now we broke Doc. <laughs> it's the same thing. Of like, there, there's like, um, there's some. Uh, they just wanted women to believe that's how you get to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly feel happily afterwards. Uh, uh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> but it's like you, you there, there's uh, FOBs that'll change between um, units and even countries sometimes, and they'll leave like messages, sometimes good, sometimes bad, and tokens and stuff of them being there, right? And so there was one of my buddies, and he was like, he was doing a tour. He was doing a tour, you know, uh, bunny ears of the uh, the fob, and he's like, and here we have this, and here we have this, and we have this new window over here because uh, you've been hit by borders and stuff. And there's just like the amount of stuff where he's just like reading off like things of like people like just just bored, you know, middle of the night, and they were like, I have nothing to do but sit here with this really big machine gun and write. Fuck you, blah 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 on the walls. That that's all they're gonna do. But then it's you have that through history. It's just 
Now we have markers. Back then, they actually had to chip it out of snow, which probably lasts a little bit longer. Yeah. If so, they only knew. Yeah. <laughs> My dick will we can drive more heads on foreheads, though. I think that's what every male wants. Yes. And, uh, right. So we've talked about some of the, <laughs> this is going to be my attempt at Walt's blood force segue. So we've talked about a little bit about the gear, about the individual soldiers, the universality of, of the fighting man, but how, you know, it can't have, well, this is debated whether it could be fantasy world without magic, but, but let's just presume that's required. And we'll do that on another panel. Um, how do you factor in then the role of, of magic into your military and still make it, you know, have that je ne sais quoi, that believability. See, I'm trying to sound sophisticated. Did it work? Yeah. No? Uh, Modern. We just finished talking about penises with wings. No, it did not work. <laughs> <laughs> My job's done here. <laughs> yeah, that was the quickest reversal I ever did here. But I guess it's also like, as, as much as your military has systems, what they're using, you know, like magic is, is gear, essentially, of how... and. and like what they're going to use it for, right? Like you could say the same thing with like science fiction, right? Where you have science fiction with warships and stuff and they're crossing one another. That is not too dissimilar from old navies with man of wars crossing one another with artillery, can like with cannons on the side, right? So it's like, you got to look at, okay, is magic rare? Is it not rare? How can it be utilized? What's the cost of it? Is If it's like, okay, you like, you can also look at, okay, you know, there's some things like if it's a cult or if it's like, hey, we use this powerful, powerful gem or, you know, we have to use sacrifices and stuff that, that builds into how they're going to fight. But, you know, it, it, it's again, it's a, it's a tool, it's a technology. At the basis, it's going to be the people, it's going to be your characters, and it just it heightens everything. It's supposed to be a tool, right? And it has to have limitations. Because if it doesn't have mm -hmm. limitations, if your mage is just standing out there, blast, 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 oh, good, it, I can get home in time for tea. That's not really much of a story. Um, no, so, no, J.K. Rowling did a good job with it. Uh, yeah, that that's one. <laughs> but but, but I, you know, I, I think magic does have to have some sort of limitations. And how you structure your magic uh, in the battle has to have been defined with how you structure your your magic for the entire universe to begin with. So yeah. if you if you haven't started, you know that foundational stuff. I mean, Walt was right. You can't can't spend too much time doing world building. But if you don't think about how your magic system works before writing in the fantasy setting, I think you you put yourself in a really problematic place where yeah. you do end up making bad choices as a writer. Like Firebolt or Fireball? What? Well, that or, you know, if you use it all the time and then suddenly you, you want to, you realize what you really want to do is write a low magic world. And yet all of a sudden, you know, you yeah. know, you, your, your mages have done all these things and they're obviously the dominant military. Magic. Yeah. Hard to, hard to walk back from that. If you write yourself into a tunnel, the only way is forward. And then you've, you've kind of limited your options, right? Yeah. Well, fans just love it when you retcon stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Did she break you with that comment? Are you going to be okay? Do you need a moment? I, I certainly <laughs> need a moment. I, I loathe retconning. I, I loathe 
it, it's one of the things that makes me despise a lot of Star Trek stuff. This, the characters are often good. The stories can be good. It's this constant retconning and time travel, and you know, it's oh oh. I'm totally joking because believe me, one oh, of the I, things I, I will tell people is that the devil's into details, but so are fans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, this leads to one really important thing that you should be doing in every world that you create. Make sure you have a freaking Bible so you yeah. know where you've put some of these things because the readers will know. And if you screw that up, they'll be like, but here. Oh. That's and, not and where it, Dave the Barbarian it, attacked. It is not just a thing <laughs> from modern fandom either. Like with modern no. fandom, it's really easy. But I remember reading um, the Darkover books and there was an author's note in it that trying to kind of explain away some of her inconsistencies within the world. And that book was like from the 90, late 90s. So, I mean, it's not yeah. a modern fandom thing. It that was a if you write it on the page, they will remember it, even if it's just once. Yes, they will. And they will. Yeah. Which is, I think, why, like, all three of us, when it was the question of how much do you go into the militaries, it was like, how much do you want to go into it? And it, it goes down to a very granular form because you go from the smallest to build up so that you know that the bedrock is good so that it'll never bite you in the ass. Okay, but I'm not going to go Dakota Crown on this and have Excel worksheets. I, I, he helped me build my Excel worksheets, so I, uh, <laughs> I can't say anything. That's kind of adorable. Yeah, we, we, we've sat around and done Excel uh, spreadsheets for probably longer than two grown men should. Um, but yeah. I built an entire wiki for my universe. Like it's online. You can go look it up, shayurn.org. It's right mm -hmm. there. Every, that's my entire Bible because, frankly, I know they're going to look it up anyway. I might as well be there to make sure I, I know what's there, too. Mm -hmm. I, I might we'll try that, it. but I'd probably break the Internet. <laughs> I was a tech guy but, uh, in between going back to grad school, so hmm. it was easy for me. Okay. Well, we been, has a hard time counting to 10. So I've got to take my, both my gloves off, and I'm good to go. We can what help. What about? <laughs> and he has all his fingers, so he don't ha doesn't have to take off his pants. Uh, that just took a uh, weird turn. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so, gonna have some of my beer now. <laughs> all right, so you know we want to end this on a fun note and not the weird, and we've been going for, for a little bit. So uh, we'll give everyone a chance to say what their favorite fantasy military unit is, and, and a little bit of why. And we'll we'll start with uh, with Michael. Uh, I was not ready for this question. Um, <laughs> it's a trap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it sounds like Star Wars to me. Um, that would be hard because, I don't know, Like most of the time it, it is... Oh, God. So, do, you, do you want us to come back to you now that everyone's heard the question? We can come back to you. Yeah, like, okay, so are you spe like specifying a, a unit or like a military just like, you, wor world, world, like oh. world series. The world series, yes. No, not uh, the world series. That is fictional too, but um, I really enjoyed uh, *Limitless Lands* by Dean Henniga, and it went into the Roman Legion, but in a, a really interesting way. Um, yeah, I really love that series for for the military units and how they work them in there. 
So I'll go next so people have time to think. I really like the way uh, Mark Allen Idleheit did his Tigers Tigers, which is basically mm-hmm. uh, I was so going to ask, like, put 10 bucks down on you saying that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's basically the Roman Legion in the middle of Middle Earth is sort of how I describe it when I try to get people. Can to I say you like half stole my answer? <laughs> I just it's it's fascinating to see the what if you know you take these yeah. these actual existing units and then I have seen in his comments because I'm I'm in his fan club is it's the way some of those fans go ballistic I know <laughs> right you've heard me say this before but the listeners might not have because not everyone Siska's my spirit listening. animal <laughs> <laughs> but the way some people get like you don't use the proper ranks or this isn't the armor they have yeah but what century are you talking about like the Roman Empire spanned a little bit. So mm-hmm. even even modern units, when you take them back in fantasy, that you still get people that that fight over the details. So, all right, Seska, you get to go next. So we give our guests time to think. So fantasy wise, I would say um, I really like how Davis Ashura did his military in the uh, cast and the outcast. I thought it was really different um, because he uses a he has a cast system. And so kind of also your roles are dictated by in, within the military by your caste system, by your place in the caste, because there's different, like all of the scouts how, are from the same caste because they all have the same magic that allows them to go out and scout and camouflage themselves naturally. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating and I enjoyed it. And then also the Deed of Pakistandria is my hardcore go-to classic. It was the first real fantasy mill SF I read. And my mom sometimes wonders why I turned out the way I did. Uh, so I, I thought you were a Pern fan. That's another fantasy mill. Pern is not a military and B is sci-fi. <laughs> but if you want to talk sci-fi, my favorite one, and I highly recommend it if you need both a good laugh and a lot of fun as well as military, and you like the military SF, is Strong Arm Tactics by Jody Lynn Nine. Because that one is mm-hmm. fascinating. And if you aren't laughing your ass off during it, you need to reread the words because it's that funny. All right. What about you, Walt? Easy. Black Company. I, I Black knew that's, company. I, that's what oh, he was going to pick. I was like, yeah. he, Black Company, all for him. Right on. I'm a huge uh, Black Company fan, too. Uh, it was an okay. honor to get to uh, have a Black Company story in my last anthology. That was a huge thing, was to get Glenn to write one for me. That's dope. It was dope. Uh, and and Siska took my other one, which is, you know, Paxanarian. Uh, so I'm going to go <laughs> I'm gonna go a sentimental favorite, and that's the Writers of Rohan. And that's solely because mm-hmm. of my, of my um, love of Anglo-Saxon history and Anglo-Saxon culture. And in my time as a grad student, I got to work with uh, all of Tolkien's professional stuff as well and getting to sort of see how that filtered into the writers and the whole old English culture that he put into that has always been a, a sentimental favorite of mine. It's not mm-hmm. as realistic as Paxonarian and, and not obviously near, near as cynical as Glenn Cook's, but uh, I, I do love it. All right. So speaking of, uh, of fantasy militaries, uh, most times when people write, there are certain archetypes for the military. Like in the modern military, you'll see the gunner versus the grunt versus the grenadier. Um, do you feel like those translate over into a fantasy world that that there are similar archetypes? Is it just the the ranged versus, um, you know, point of stab? I mean, what do you guys feel about the the role of archetypes in 
fantasy militaries. As you're going to have people, you're going to have so many different roles, right? But it, especially if it's if it is sword and sorcery, you know, whoever's got magic and then whoever's got a sword, right? There, that'll differentiate right off the bat. Um, but yeah, it, it's also the combination of the two, right? Like if, if you've got a guy who's got sorcery and using a sword, how are they going to use that together? I, I think fantasy lends itself to archetypes better than, than modern in many ways. Um, and I just have to look at role-playing games for that. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in, in modern role-playing games like Twilight 2K or, you know, Travel or something like that, oftentimes the venturing party sort of, there's a sameness to each one of the characters. Whereas for, for Pathfinder or Dungeons & Dragons, you know, you have to have the healer, you have to have the rogue, you have to have the tank, you have to have you know, a mage. And if you don't, your party's off balance and you really have to work around that sort of thing. And so I think that that in, in fantasy military, you can have a lot of that sort of thing built in as well. So we've been at this for a while, but, and we could go on forever, I'm sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> but what are you guys working on currently? I think that's a great way to in the show is letting you guys plug your new work or if you just came out <coughs> with a book, Walt. <clears throat> Are you asking me first? No, I was yes. actually timing you out of time. <laughs> oh, I see, I see. But that works. Go ahead and start, Walt. Um, what I'm working on, um, I can't actually say because um, I'm doing some ghostwriting. So <laughs> I can't okay. tell anybody what I'm working on because uh, nobody's supposed to, you know, they're going to slap their name on it. So what was your most recent book that then came out? Uh, that would be Hunter's Moon, The Mongrel. Um, Murder Dog. Oh, my God. <laughs> He's so much fun. And that's the that's the character in the book that everybody likes. And I'm like, he was supposed to be like a side character. So, um, do you want to just scream at him and go, You're not supposed to like this guy? Oh my god, yeah, How many but times it's, it happens. Though? Oh my god, but that, like, I had one guy call me and he's like, I almost got into a car accident. I'm like, Are you okay? He's like, I was listening to your book and they tell me the name of the, the freaking murder dog. I laughed so hard, I almost laughed into a pole. I was like, That's awesome. I'm sorry, <laughs> click. <laughs> So yeah, if you want to, uh, Jr. Do you know how to do a screen share? Have you I ever do. done that before? Yes, he I does have. that on a routine basis. All right, man. We make There's, him practice. There we it. go. There we are, right there. The main man and his murder dog. So wow, yeah, dandy. That's my stuff. You tell him, Elvis. Go buy that shit. Uh -oh. uh, and you uh, killed Siska. You hit the wrong tab. Oh shit! Yeah, bring, I mean, bring her back in. So much. There we go. Wow, you got voted off the island and back on the island real quick. What can I say? I'm just why, right? So, uh, so Rob, the wine. <laughs> what are you working on, Rob? Here tonight. Well, I actually just released a mill sci-fi uh, three weeks ago, uh, The Ravening of Wolves. It's another one of the Four Horsemen Universe uh, novels. Uh, I'm currently working on uh, an anthology for uh, New Mythology Press, which is the fantasy imprint of Chris Kennedy Publishing. Uh, mm -hmm. This is Talons and Talismans. Um, and that's going to get released at some point in the fall. Um, we do have still have a little bit of time for that open call, which is the end of July. And then I have another open call coming up soon, in uh, ending in November, for the Fantasy Anthology. 
As for what I'm writing, I can't really talk about it yet either. I'll be making some announcements uh, Dragon Con time about what we're doing with that, uh, which That's tangentially together, right? connects to Mark Allen Idleheight because of Quincy Allen, who contributes to that to uh, Mark's setting. So, lots of things going on for me because I'm now doing the publisher gig thing gig uh, and and having a great time at it. We got a bunch of stuff coming, and I'm really excited about what we're going to do. But flying like mad. All right, and Michael. Um, so I'm currently working on the Ten Realm series. Um, I think uh, Seventh Realm Book One came out a couple of days ago, last week. I don't know. It kind of it blends together. Um, uh, seventh, uh, the Sixth Realm Part Two audiobook is out in three days. The Seventh Realm Part Two is out soon, and I can't tell anyone yet when because the editor is is literally delivering it back to me shortly. I hope. Um, and so that'll be out soon, but then I am working on something else that's science fiction related. Um, I'm also finishing off the 10 realms because there's going to be 10 books. And so we've still got another three to go. Um, but I'm also working on a little something sci-fi related, which should be pretty fun. At least I'm having a lot of fun with it. So, yeah. All right. And I am still, I'm working on a uh, military portal fantasy where modern striker brigade and fantasy Egypt with a, with a legendary game designer, James M. Ward, not as legendary as Walt, but he's getting there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I didn't kick him off. I promise. Um, But uh, Elvis did. You get him. Elvis. So Walt, can you tell listeners how they can find you as we bring this to a close? Triple W dot hazard studio dot net. Uh, or find me on the Facebook, just uh, uh, just Walt. Big big W, big T, everything else small. It's all good. All right. Uh, Rob, how can listeners find you? Uh, RobHowell.org. Uh, you can find uh, the New Mythology Press under ChrisKennedyPublishing.com. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on MeWe. Um, look forward to chatting to some of your listeners down the road all right and michael last but not least uh if you just uh, search my name uh, michael chatfield on amazon facebook patreon i'm all over the place um it's always good fun so yeah drop on by and uh yeah be awesome to see some people over there and as usual all of those links will be in the show notes so scroll down and read them for crying out loud and <laughs> you can find us on our website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades uh, you can find us on Twitter at SF underscore fantasy underscore show, Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We promise we actually answer it. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. And if you want to support the show and help keep the lights on, buymeacoffee.com backslash author JR Hanley. Be sure to put in for the podcast in the comment section. And I promise I will keep Nick Garber and Doc Seska duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrender i promise never surrender do you you do realize that the best part of the those intros and outros is siska uh repeating it wordlessly in the background while mocking uh, you yeah gotcha. okay. <laughs> i might have been a tour guide in a past life uh and if you want to support us you can also do so on a reoccurring monthly basis on uh anchor.fm backslash blasters tech antac blades doc what, what, what is it what is it antac a dash, a little long. Oh. 
Tac and dash, whatever. Okay. I, I just didn't know. So I was like, well, what is this Antac you speak of? It's dash dash colon? No, it's colon, like a dash, word dash. blasters and a dash, and then the word and spelled out, and then a dash, and then blades, like our name, Blasters and Blades Podcast. Oh, okay. No, I was, I was asking about the Antac. Yeah. Yeah, I'm you can make that a thing if you want. <laughs> I think it is a thing, JR. You just don't know. <laughs> like every time I, I heard it, like every time I heard it, I was thinking Anzac, and I'm like, well, that's not New Zealand. I mean, and and why do we have you know the Australians and the Kiwis fighting with us in this podcast? But... I, I heard it, and I was like, is he trying to say anthrax? Because that's that's <laughs> that's not good. That's real bad. <laughs> I, I got all the facts. I don't know if be doing that in places. <laughs> <laughs> it's all my fault. Blame Walt. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> <laughs> Tell him, Elvis. <laughs> He's probably wondering what Antac is, too. <laughs> <laughs> is that a kind of walk or a treat? Man, I'm hungry. Yeah, how bad is it that I've been hearing him say this? And I don't even notice it anymore. I'm just like, whatever like, that is. Okay. Like I said, the 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 mimicry on the back end is just hysterical. Yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> so thank you for spending your time with us uh, for the lost and sober because we didn't share our booze with him this week. Nick Garber and J.R. Hanley. I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blade podcast. We'll be back. Roughly same time next week, same general location, <laughs> indulging, picking on JR, cheesy jokes, everything that goes boom, and what other randomness that will make him cringe. <laughs> we love him. We do. 